Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to She Runs Government Dialogues. Uh, we are live on the Quint, if you're joining us. Uh, thank you all for joining in. Um, so a little about myself. I'm Angelica Aribam, the founder of Converse Foundation, which is organizing this initiative. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to amplify women's political leadership in India through capacity building and mentorship. So She Runs Government Dialogues is an initiative where we bring in different political leaders of different political parties and make them come and discuss issues on how to advance women's political leadership in India. And uh, today we are here for the session, very interesting session, which is focused on the Women's Reservation Bill. And uh, we have three webinars as part of this, this edition of the dialogues. One is right now you're watching, one is today later at 9 p.m. and another one is tomorrow at 5 p.m. So in this particular session, we will be discussing the history of the Women's Reservation Bill, the 24-year-old long history, and uh, you know how we came here and uh, basically the history and the with us for the for this very interesting discussions that we have scheduled. We have three. We have so far two. One will be joining in a while, I hope. So we are. Let me just introduce them to you, Miss. Um, uh, Margaret Elva is a former governor and unit minister. She has served four terms in the Rajya Sabha with a team uh, with a term in the Lok Sabha. During her term as Women and Child Development Minister in the Rajiv Gandhi government, she played an important role towards introducing 32% reservation for women with the 73rd and 74th constitutional amendments. Ms. Brinda Karat is the first woman to be inducted in the Politburo of the CPIM. She is also the vice president of the All India Democratic Women's Association. She was a member of the Rajya Sabha when the bill was passed in 2010. Um, Ms. Renuka Chaudhary is a former uh, Women and Child Development Minister. She has served as a member of Rajya Sabha as well as the Lok Sabha. She was a strong voice for women's reservation during the UPA government. Um, together, the women leaders will share the lived experiences of advocating for women's reservation in the Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha. The session is gonna be moderated by Ms. Pragya Tiwari, she is a writer and also the editor of Indian Policy Collective. She is a journalist and writes on policy, politics, arts, and culture for a wide number of international and national publications, including the New York Times, Al Jazeera, and Times of India. Um, but before and uh, you know, before we get into the panel discussion, this is a shout out for the Quint. Uh, if you guys are enjoying the webinar, then make sure you subscribe to the Quint's membership and enjoy the exclusive webinars offered by the Quint members. So over to you, Pragya. Thank you so much, Angelica. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're about to have. Before we dive in, um, I don't know how many of you are um, familiar with the history of the bill. And even if you are, it's been so bloody long, excuse my language, that um, it bears, uh, you know, it, it makes sense for uh, us to refresh our memories. So I'm just gonna quickly start with the facts about the history of the bill before I bring in our wonderful speakers for today. So the Women's Reservation Bill was first introduced in 1996 by the Devigada government. After the bill failed to get approval in Lok Sabha, it was referred to a joint parliamentary committee chaired by Gita Mukherjee, which presented its report to the Lok Sabha in December, 1996. But the bill lapsed again with the, uh, uh, for, the, for the first time rather, uh, with the dissolution of the Lok Sabha and had to be reintroduced. The Vajpayee NDA government reintroduced the bill 
in the 12th Lok Sabha in 1998, it failed to get support yet again and lacks. The NDA government reintroduced it in the 13th Lok Sabha in 1999. Subsequently, the bill was introduced twice in Parliament in 2003. In 2004, the UPA government included it in the Common Minimum Program, which said that the UPA government will take the lead to introduce legislation for one-third reservations for women in Vidhan Sabhas and in the Lok Sabha. In 2008, the government tabled the bill in the Rajya Sabha so that it does not lapse yet again. The Parliamentary Standing Committee on Law and Justice and Personnel recommended passage of the bill in December 2009. The bill was cleared by the Union Cabinet in February 2010. In March 2010, the bill was passed in the Rajya Sabha with 186 to 1 vote. The history was and history was created. This was a big moment for the votaries of this bill, for all of us. However, due to immense opposition and even violence from various regional parties, the bill was unfortunately not tabled in the Lok Sabha. And it's been 10 long years since, and we're still waiting for movement on the bill. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off by asking, perhaps starting with Ms. Alva, uh, for opening thoughts, opening comments, that they anything that they might want to share and then, of course, um, I'll go on to questions. So about roughly five minutes, Ms. Alba, just opening comments that you'd like to share with us. Thank you so much. You know, I would like to go a little beyond the Women's Reservation Bill as it stands today, because there had been committees, commissions, and so on, right from the 70s when the Committee on the Status of Women was set up. All these went through various aspects of women's equality, development, and so on, but focused essentially on health, education, employment, and the social sectors. None of them really laid emphasis on getting women into the mainstream political process. It was in 1988 that the National Perspective Plan for Women was drafted, I was in the Ministry of Women and Child Development in the Rajiv Gandhi government. And it was for the first time that we came out with a recommendation that from panchayats to parliament, women needed to be given a place. And we recommended 33% reservation for women right from the panchayats to parliament. But there was tremendous opposition. I remember taking the plan on the prime minister's directive to the cabinet and the jokes and the amount of uh, flack I had to face. Uh, things like, oh, these women go to the United Nations and come back with ideas from different places which will never work in this country. Women don't come out of their houses and how can they stand for elections? Various kinds of objections. So Rajiv Gandhi decided that we would start with the panchayats and then later move upwards, that it was not possible to get the entire bill through. I mean, the, all the recommendations through. So there was this massive mobilization campaign to get this 33% reservation in the panchayats approved as the first step. 
And then, it, uh, you know, we thought that gradually, once these women come to be accepted, we would move up. But even that effort in when the two constitutional amendment bills were defeated in parliament for the panchayats. Nineteen BV nurses came back. This were reintroduced, and luckily, all parties accepted them. Actually, the first step towards the issue of political participation and reservations for women in the political field and We seem to have lost Miss Alva. I don't know if she can still be heard. Brinda, are you able to hear Miss Alva right now? We have, have we uh, not right now. I think there's been a disconnection. Maybe you can just try once more to try and get her. Maybe somebody can call her. Yes, we'll. Uh, she's right in the middle of it. It's fine. Uh, she can finish her thoughts later, Brinda, but because we have lots of people watching, may I ask you to uh, start speaking in the meanwhile? We also have Ms. Chaudhary with us. Welcome, ma'am. We've just about started. Brinda, would you like to uh, um, just start with some of your thoughts? Maybe you want to comment on what uh, Ms. Alva was saying or just uh, tell us what you generally want to uh, say on the bill while we try to get um, her back. Well, I think the most important thing is that the Women's Reservation Bill went far beyond the actual scope of the bill to challenge entrenched political power. I think in challenging and entrenched political power, I think Ms. Alva's back. So I think that just uh, Margaret finish her thoughts and then I can continue. Pragya? Yes, absolutely, Ms. Alva. Sorry, you got interrupted. It was considered the first step forward, but in spite of all the efforts made, the bill which came in 1996 in the Dere Gowda government is still not passed. But the panchayats have shown that women are capable of fighting elections. Though it is 33% reservations, we have women today who have reached 45% throughout the country, contesting, uh, 50 maybe in many states, mm. and contesting from unreserved constituencies and defeating men in elections. Now, this is what has actually frightened the men because they feel if women are given more uh, room, they will probably get totally eliminated. This has been the problem. But I mean, the way all of us are here, we have seen this go. I was in parliament, bills introduced, this, um, you know, not allowed to be passed. And then finally, when the Rajya Sabha passed the bill, we thought we had crossed the hurdle. But then it got stuck in the Lok Sabha again, and the bill has not yet been passed. Male-dominated, male-oriented structures are not going to easily let the women stay. This is my analysis. So uh, just to quickly add to what Ms. Alva said what before I hand over to Brinda, um, 
you know what she said the this when the panchayati raj reservation was put into place and even long afterwards there was always this sort of you know notion this this idea that you know women are not really going to stand for elections they are just going to be proxies for their fathers or their brothers or their husbands and they are not really going to be exercising any real power they don't have any real political will but not only did um, what miss alva tell you is true that now they are they have you know even when this because it's rotational when the constituencies are not reserved they stand a better chance to be elected but there was a wonderful study done by esther duflo and abhijit banerji who recently won the nobel prize talking about how in tamil nadu in west bengal in rajasthan where women were elected on reserved seats they tended to think about policy matter that matters that mattered most to women which is genuinely what representation should look like so it's been no matter what the naysayers say a tremendous su success you know given all the different circumstances and even downsides but i would, I would add that the important thing is that the development agenda at the grassroots level has changed it's not just what the men used to think about women are asking for drinking water for anganwadis for the nurse to come regularly therefore the human side of development has now begun to emerge at the grassroots level changing women's lives absolutely and there are huge social dividends too um brinda over to you you made a wonderful beginning and i'm uh, longing to hear you continue thank you well as i was saying that it's not just a question of one legislation or law but what it represents and this is a fight to challenge powerful entrenched interests in our polity and if you look at it this has nothing to do with the values which the constitution represents values of equality values of secularism and values most importantly of democracy now if you look at even our freedom struggle in the fact that it was women actually who were equally responsible for throwing out a colonial regime but in the very first parliament election in india what did we see in the new house we had only 24 members 24 women members had that anything to do with merit had that anything to do with democracy had that anything to do with the promises no why because within the political system even though we have had and we still have very eminent women leaders some even leading parties or being in very important positions of parties the entire system and particularly the system which is a party based system has the internal dynamics of entrenched power and there's no doubt about it it is male entrenched power so the first thing that the women's reservation bill or the issue of women in decision making bodies in elected decision making bodies we don't want nominations many countries around the world have nominated members the women's movement and i think we have to grant and recognize that it's women's organization and movements which in spite of the absence of the political will of many parties who have ruled india it is women's organizations and movements and lakhs and millions of women across india who have kept the fire burning of the struggle of challenge to male entrenched power 
The second point is, this is not, at least I don't see it as, as though certainly at one level it is men versus women and women versus men in this dynamic. But I see this really as a struggle of women to expand uh, the framework of Indian democracy. Because if you have a country in which, well, now we're not even 50% of the population, but because of other aspects of patriarchal power and sex determination tests, but if you look at the fact that half your population does not even reach 20% in 73 years of independence, Today, we, the highest number we've ever had is 14%. I mean, that's behind Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and even Bangladesh. So in all our neighborhood, India, the largest democracy, has 14% women. So I believe that the fight we have waged, and I can tell you it has been a fight. We were there in 2010. And my God, the kind of violence in the house, I know because I was involved in the discussions with the UAPA at that time, uh, being a member of the CPIM, which was supporting the UAPA. And I know every single nuance of what went on there. And till the last minute, there was so much uncertainty because members of the UAPA coalition were so dead against the bill that at every point we thought we were moving forward, we were pushed backwards, but we fought. And who is the we? We are the women in the panchayats who showed by example what women can do. Although why women have to be super women to show what we have to do, I still haven't figured that one out. But women in panchayats, women in women's organizations, women across the country who were enraged by what they saw, and on that fateful day, I can tell you in the morning, we had a meeting in the chamber of the chairman of the Rajya Sabha, the very learned and respected Dr. Hamid Ansari. And I can tell you that was the one time I felt really confident that we're gonna get the bill through because in the earlier occasions, as Renuka will tell her story of how she had to protect the law minister when it was first tabled in parliament in 2008. I'll leave that to her. But in 2010, in that meeting, people barged into the meeting and said, we are warning you, we are not going to allow the bill to be passed. So we had our own strategy. And I must say another wonderful thing was that across political parties, the way the women stood firm, even a woman member of the Samajwadi party, who because of party, you know, she had to walk out or she had to oppose it. But she was so supportive and said, you know, if I could do it, I would be right there standing with you. So women across political parties, we stood firm and we ensured that the political steps taken by uh, the government, the UAPA government, they showed the political will. The chairman of the Rajya Sabha showed the difference between him and all the earlier personnel or officers of the, of the Rajya Sabha and Lok Sabha who were mandated to see the bill through, but who you know, collapsed under the uh, pressure of the opposition and probably internal sabotage also. That day in the Rajya Sabha, an MP sitting behind me 
he just leapt onto the table. He almost fell on top of me. He smashed a glass, broke his hand. I mean, you know, was dripping blood on his hand, holding his hand up and saying, ye khun ka kasam hai. Hum kabhi bhi is bil ko nahi hone denge. And we tried to block all these people from rushing to the well. Three times the house was adjourned. And then ultimately, and finally, they had to be physically removed from the house. So that was the drama. And it was only because of all these various factors, which I have mentioned one by one in my presentation, it all came together and we got that built through. And I remember that scene because Sushmaji, um, when she was uh, responsible in the Lok Sabha during India time, she tried hard, but her own colleagues, you know, just didn't let it happen. And the first person who was standing outside parliament at 10 o'clock at night to greet us coming out of the Rajya Sabha was Sushmanji. And I can't remember, I can't forget that occasion because we have such deep political and fundamental differences. But on this issue, um, the affection and regard and happiness. And so I must today when I speak, remember Sushmaji and uh, her efforts with all of us fighters. I mean, I remember Renuka. <laughs> we go through those days. I mean, we can't really forget them. But it was all a part of a struggle. And I think the distance between the Rajya Sabha and Lok Sabha is five minute walk. But from 2010 to 2020, I must say, it is a shame that a government which has such a big majority has not brought the bill even to the business agenda. Forget trying to pass it. It's not even on the agenda of parliament business. And I think today's webinar, I really thank the organizers for this because it's important to bring back that history, a history of struggle. It's not a fruitless or futile struggle. We've achieved so much along the way, but we've got to get this bill through. We've got to get it placed. We have to, all of us, fight for it. And I appeal to all my sisters, those fighters in the Lok Sabha, Are come out, forget everything, just come out and fight for this bill. It's your bill. It's only going to help all our sisters everywhere. So fight for it. That's my only message today. Speaking of fighting, um, women have fought for the bill very hard, like Ms. Karat mentioned. They have even had to fight for it physically, like Ms. And this is Ms. Chaudhary's story, so I am loath to tell it. But women, including her, have had to protect their male ministerial colleagues inside the house for the yes. sake of this bill. And in the face of opposition, which, mind you, was not on policy concerns, but extremely crude opposition, a little bit of which Ms. Karat spoke about, Ms. Alba spoke about. Well, for the rest of it, I, I will ask Ms. Chaudhary to tell us a little bit about her own experience with the bill, which would have been extremely funny were it not so tragic. Yeah, right. Sorry, Ms. Chaudhary, we're not able to hear you. You might be on mute. unable to hear you. No, 
we're still not being able to hear you, Ms. Chaudhary. Just check if your um, microphone is on. No, not yet. Okay, Ms. Chaudhary, I've just asked somebody to call you to help you out with the microphone so that we can bring you on board. But I'm going to, while we wait for her, I'm just going to ask uh, you guys, uh, start by asking you guys a couple of questions that I hope to bring Ms. Chaudhary on later. Um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the, of course, like I was saying a little bit earlier that most of the opposition that we saw to the bill has been really crude, including people, um, you know, like, uh, Sharad Yadav and Abu Azmi saying extremely crude things in the house against the bill, etc. Ms. Alba was talking about the jokes that were being cracked, but there were, there have been a couple of policy concerns raised as well. I would like for us to be able to sort of discuss those policy concerns and maybe talk about why they are or not relevant. The number one policy concern that is obviously, uh, you know, that was kind of used was this sort of quota within quota uh, argument, you know, so towards the end, RJD was kind of ostensibly at least opposing the bill on grounds that there should be a reservation for Dalits and for OBCs within the quota for women. Now, 2008 bill kind of ameliorated that situation. Um, it is difficult to say whether the RJD was being sort of sincere about this or using it as, as, as just another reason to kind of oppose the bill. But for the sake of argument, what are your thoughts on this quota within quota um, argument? I, we could start with you, Ms. Alva. You know, the RJD wanted 20% of seats within the reservation quota for minorities and backward classes, OBC. Now, under the constitution, there is no reservation for these two groups, um, you know, anywhere at all. And therefore, while SC, STs, and Anglo-Indians who had a certain quota in parliament were included, the Gita Mukherjee's um, committee recommendations, the seven of them which came, included this quota within quota for these three sections. But the, it was said technically that you cannot give a quota in the Women's Reservation Bill, which does not exist for parliament as a whole under the constitution. So that had to be left out. The other thing that was left out was the upper houses because of the system of voting, which was the single transferable vote because of which it was impossible to reserve seats in the upper house. These were the only two objections which had been raised and which we could not deal with. I was a member of the Joint Select Committee with Gita Mukherjee. And we did try to find a compromise, but we could not on this issue, which the RJD had raised. 
could you give me a sense of what some of the, those compromises could have been no it was impossible what could you do the question is that there is no reservation for obcs as yet in the constitution so you cannot introduce in the women's reservation bill what does not exist constitutionally for parliament and therefore it could not be done and it was on technical grounds that this was left up namaskarat uh, your thoughts do you think it was a or it remains no. a concern or do you think that that can be handled or dealt with later um i don't think it's a question of later or not the truth is that there is a caste system which exists in india there is no doubt about it that caste discrimination including within politics exists in india after all how many dalits or adivasis have been able to win from general seats in india so we should not fool ourselves that we are living in an ideal world where caste is not a factor it's very much a factor and today in fact caste drives politics in very many states it drives it so to raise the issue of caste in which ways can it be dealt with that is the first question as margaret has very correctly said there is a constitutional framework at present states are enabled by the constitutional amendment for the panchayat and local bodies in the panchayat system there are certain states who have rotational reservation for obcs for the panchayat level so it does exist however you require a separate constitutional amendment for reservation of obcs in state assemblies and in parliament also, now although let me just finish um, yeah and when we look at the whole framework we find that in the 50s and up till the 60s there is no doubt that there was a huge domination of the upper caste without this kind of reservation and it was the self mobilization of oppressed caste under the obc category particularly after the mandal commission which successfully challenged particularly in the hindi heartland these entrenched casteist interests and they overturned it through self mobilization and therefore you find in a large number of states and including in parliament we did an exercise when we made a presentation on behalf of the all india democratic women's association i was a general secretary at that time outside parliament and when we came to the parliamentary committee we had done a detailed study of the kind of social composition that we have in parliament and in state assemblies and we found that the single largest social community due to self mobilization was the obcs so even in a state like bihar if you looked at the female representation which was dismal but still among the female mlas and mps obc women did do better when they were given the opportunity to fight elections than others so since caste does matter what we believed was that scst reservations are essential they constitutionally mandated so in a vertical reservation framework for women versus men within women you must have scst reservation 
And therefore, right from the beginning, since 1996 till 2010, the bill always had reservation for SC and ST. So it is entirely misleading and false propaganda that Dalit women or Adivasi women would be left out. As far as OBC women are concerned, and even more than that, Muslim women, unfortunately, what we see today, particularly as far as the minority community is concerned, that as it is, minority representation is very, very poor all over India. In most of the states in India, even where they have a good percentage of votes and voters, it is poor because again, because of various communal considerations, whatever. But there is no constitution when they tried to do it. It was struck down by the courts. So we said, you are utilizing this mm. to sabotage the bill because you know very well, you have never asked not a single OBC leader stood up and asked, we want OBC reservations in parliament. We want OBC reservations in assemblies. Not once. I can challenge them on this. Not a single OBC leader ever made that demand that have OBC reservations. And within that, in the women's reservation bill, we can have. So they were not concerned about that. So therefore, it was lip service. They were dead against having women in parliament because we could see from their reactions. They were least concerned about OBC women. And we know, because we are working among those same sections, there's no monopoly of people working among OBC women. In our organization, for example, the largest section is OBC women. And they are totally for the bill because they know they have to fight casteism and they also have to fight patriarchy. So in a seat where there's an OBC overwhelming population, if that seat is reserved for a woman, obviously every party who considers caste as a criteria will give it to an OBC woman. So OBC women will benefit from it. And we were convinced of it because we are anti-casteist, I can tell you. We can't fight for women's reservations on a caste-based platform. But I don't think this was a genuine approach or a genuine concern for women of their community. Um, thank you for that, Ms. Karat. Uh, Ms. Chaudhary, are you able to hear me now? I can hear you. There was some problem. Oh, okay. I can hear you. Hallelujah. Yeah. So uh, just to bring you up to speed, um, yeah. my earlier question to you was, of course, to just get your opening comments and just talk about your, you know, the kind of fight, both physical and, of course, uh, logistical and, you know, political that have to be put up for the bill. But while you were gone, while we lost you for a second, we were also discussing the opposition to the bill on the grounds that um, the, OB the, the reservation didn't include a, a sort of sub-reservation for OBCs and minorities. So just that whole gamo, uh, some of your thoughts, please. Well, I, I'm sure Brinda and uh, Margaret have already articulated it most efficiently in the way that they <laughs> <laughs> and have said it for what it was, and we were all witness to history of this. Renuka, I was witness to your muscular palm, my dear. <laughs> In some places, we need to throw our weight around. So, <laughs> come on, tell us about the tell well, us about that fateful day in the house. We were all we were all uh, 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 excited about the bill coming and. The Honorable Minister Jaipal Reddy at that moment was a little nervous and uh, um, he was 
uh, worried that he is going to be attacked, which he was going to be. And uh, so we saw all this aggressive adrenaline and testosterone going on in parliament where all these male bonding cutting across all party lines, believe me. It didn't matter what your party whip was, what your line was, but they were bonding across the, uh, the whole thing. And they had made up their mind that at some point the bill is going to be destroyed so that it cannot be tabled in the parliament, in Sabha. And so uh, it was announced and the Honorable Minister stood up and we had put him two benches behind, if Brinda recollects, we had put him two benches behind so that he's in the middle and access to him would be limited. It didn't stop the athletic abilities of uh, some of the members. And so you have this man leaping like a kangaroo across, That's it. trying to muscle in on everything. And we were just watching helplessly. And we knew that in another second, a chief of papers from the minister's hand is going to be taken away and manually shredded. And because of that technical snag, the bill will fall and it will not be able to be tabled. So I had to move. I had to move in and uh, use my considerable substance um, <laughs> to, Good for you, uh, to stop that physically. And so I had to hold on to this man, much against my wishes, but I had to grab him and, uh, uh, you know, keep him immobilized there. And a lot of other guys came rushing in to help him. And we had to muscle in and make sure that uh, the minister would hurry up and read what he had to read to ensure that the bill was uh, technically acceptable and that it would be brought onto the table. So that was one misadventure. And the point is that in this long journey that we've been going on, all these clauses, sub-clauses and uh, reservation within reservation and for women, uh, OBC women, as if they cared, these were merely dilutionary and diversionary tactics of political parties and men across all political parties because the thought of power sharing, you know, this, this misogynist thinking that our men are so used to, the thought that they'll have to spend money on the women for their elections, that women will make decision-making probably better than what they've already done, as we have shown when we brought gender budgeting and we uh, made people, sensitized people to understand why a woman's point is important when you budget. It's not just about uh, feminism or a gender issue or anything like that. It is about a holistic balance that a society needs when you get inputs from women too. So in gender budgeting, we asked men and women that if we gave you an imaginary road, where would you like the road to start and where would you like it to lead to? There was no correct or wrong answer. It was to get a balance to understand how, what the perspective is, what the perception is for men and women gender-wise. So the men said, well, we wanted to lead it to the uh, agricultural markets and we want this. And they did say that we wanted to lead to the local Thara shop. And the women said that we want the uh, road to lead to schools and temples, etc. Now, none of these are right or wrong. They're all necessary. They're all implicit in the society that we live. And the idea is to get that balance. Tell me, men budgeted for us, men planned for us, 
men had planning commissions and now niti ayogs and what have you and they didn't realize that girls come into reproductive years that you need schools which have toilets i mean isn't that common sense isn't that basic or did they think that women don't need to use a toilet and they can go shimmy up a tree and do it and we can't and it never occurred that it's a fundamental need and that is the reason we want women's uh, a reservation in parliament so that the crores of rupees the contribution to the gdp which women do the educated women who are the ceos of huge industries today contributing to this country's uh, development that it is women who also matter and women who bring about the balance there's a whole feminization that's happening in the globe if you look at the industrialization era where we talked about exploiting the earth today we don't talk like that it's politically incorrect and what brought about the change the sensitization to women's presence the ability of women to do india loses on her gdp because it she does not incorporate women into workspaces to the percentage that is optimum required african countries have the critical mass and we are still battling to pass a bill which is not charity which is not something that we are begging for it's our constitutional right that we represent this country on every fora and that in parliament we should be part of that decision making that makes it that gives us an atmosphere of holistic inclusion but why does it take the men so long and like brinda said i caught it uh, caught her at the last moment where she was talking about shushma ji shushma ji was one person who cheered us and gave us the last hurra every step of the way irrespective of what political parties we belong to and if you look at the international forums where we attended women's meetings the pain the wound the geography of the wound was the same for every woman across all countries whether they were black brown yellow polka dot pinstripe it didn't matter the suffering the the violence against women the domestic violence the law which we brought about in this country you should have seen that drama at some point oh i can talk yeah. about that you for remember. sure and uh, men who were uh, outraged and who warned me that i would lose my election which i happily did as long as the bill came along and uh, we empowered women to understand that they don't need to be beaten so we wanted the women's reservation bill not because it was to replace so many men which is not such a bad idea actually but basically to say that when we say we the people and we talk about the constitution and the freedom movement women were there are there will always be there and it is time for the men to sit up and acknowledge us now i think the single person who with one signature altered the destiny of gazillion women across the country was late rajiv gandhi when he signed on the inclusion of women in the panchayati raj and we got the reservation at the grassroots level suddenly the men who came and who would pester us for various funds etc had to parade their women they had to bring them and yes initially we saw 
something like a man coming and saying, I am uh, Sarpanchpati. And somehow I Panchpati. No, they said Sarpanchpati. South, they say that. So I was a little goofed. I said, what does that mean politically? I, I don't recognize that title. Like, you know, I don't know if there's any constitutional empowerment to that title. And so I asked him, what does it mean? And he said, ah, well, I'm her husband. I said, yeah, but that doesn't give you automatic recourse to funds or decision making. She's got to take the call. And you should have seen the stunned look in their face. And they were looking at me saying, has this woman lost the plot? Like she doesn't understand. I'm the Sarpanch's husband and I spent the money to make her win. And hence I should have the authority. You cannot, my dear man, you cannot. And the same women who came in the second term had the courage, the strength of character to tell the husbands, it's all right, what you've said is a bright idea, but please sit aside. And I'm going to make that call and do it. And the films on this, the beautiful little vignettes and films which have shown the transition of women where you can see the husband sitting absolutely fed up and he's actually saying it on, on the screen saying that, yeah, and the woman's rolling her eyes and in the next trial where she's walking into the panchayat and all the men stand up and give her respect because she has won the election and she walks in and they stand up and they wait till she is seated and then she makes a call and she takes a decision that the money should go towards developing a graveyard because there aren't enough in the local panchayat for the bodies to be buried. And the whole society lauded her because that was a long unmet need that the village had articulated and no one bothered about. So it just shows how when women come into leadership, when they are there and they are able to take a decision, they do it for the larger good. And it is always beneficial. Do human beings, do women misuse the law? as much, uh, maybe less than the men because we are in so few numbers. Yes, human behavior, the human instinct is universally the same world over. But when you give authority, when you give opportunity to women, you see that a lot of good comes through it. We've had Margaret Alva as an outstanding minister for years who held her own, who contributed towards so much development who uh, got gathered as women on many foras together and uh, we were able to put collectively a thought process into an action plan and move forward. So when women can do that, why, what authority, on whose right does anyone say that the women's bill mustn't come in this current government? I'm sorry, I'm not just speaking as a, um, as a Congress person, but I'm speaking as a citizen and as a woman you have the most crude, rude men in this current government. Men who I, I really sympathize with their wives and daughters at home because if they can behave like that publicly in today's era of communication, what they must be at home is questionable. It is really worrying. And you had the prime minister who was standing in parliament and blatantly telling a mistruth about the Aadhaar card, where he had mocked us collectively. It's on video, I can show it to you, 
where he said ye congress jo aadhar card ko pakad ke jhool rahi hai and then turned around uh, uh, 360 degrees and said i have brought the aadhar card and i just found it so inexplicably hilarious that a man had to find the need to borrow and and tell a mistruth in parliament and he of course uh gave me a compliment saying that uh, i reminded him of surpanaka a man who claimed his backward caste uh identity with great uh, pride they uh, decried surpanaka what was surpanaka's fault that she fell in love with maryada purushottam ram that she revered him and that she wanted him and Uh, she lost her face she was disfigured not far from the acid attacks we see today but she was disfigured her nose and ears were chopped off because she had the audacity to ask for a uh, maryada purushottam ram of another caste equation and the prime minister only thought of her as an example he didn't think of any he decried he denigrated my status as a woman in parliament he did, uh, there are ipc sections by which the prime, prime minister of this country can be arrested and a case booked against him for the kind of talk that he did and i couldn't agree more and when we talk about the bipartisanship that existed between women when it came to this particular bill one can't help but fantasize that maybe what it will now finally take to get what what is called statesmanship back which would be called statesmanship really back into our polity and politics and within the parliament will be more women in politics i heartily believe that but you know mr right on something. that sorry i have a right on that tell there's me. no bill that tells any political party that you can't give 33% no there's nothing stopping us so i don't want political parties to use this as a uh, crutch to say why they can't give because the bill hasn't passed in parliament so this is something we need to kind of talk about this i i don't have much time but i'll touch upon two things just to get your thoughts on it one is this is often used again as one of those things again pushing back against the bill is that why not given within the parties right instead, instead of giving it um you know uh, reserving the seats in legislative assemblies and in the parliament of course why not do both i have no idea but as if it's it has to be either or but one, what one cannot deny is that the situation within parties of course is not great whether it's an i have 2014 data 5 out of 42 cwc members in congress 6 out of 57 in aicc maybe it's become a little bit better brinda you of course you were the first woman to enter the politburo so this is across parties where where you know we forget about tickets we don't even find women in you know duly representative Uh, represented in the decision making processes of parties is that something now there's been some movement on that where uh, mamta banerji and uh, navin patnaik of course um, you know in the last lok sabha elections uh, stepped up and gave uh, tickets to women as uh, they deserve to get but by and large this doesn't change either and i i just want to get your thoughts on it do you feel that passing the bill will I mean, will it be a sort of top-down, you know, a sort of trickle-down effect where if we manage to pass the bill, then this might manage this this sort of behavior within parties also might change. Just want to get thoughts. Any of you might, whichever one of you want to start. I just want to say that five political parties in the country had women presidents. Five. 
okay including the congress but numbers of women candidates never went up i was in the central election committee for 10 years it was a battle in every meeting to get deserving and qualified women a chance there was always an excuse oh she is this she is that once there was this woman from tamil nadu and these old men sitting in the committee had the cheek to say oh she is too old to contest i said i'm sorry if she is old to contest more than 50% of you sitting here should have retired long ago i told them and the woman got the seat it's impossible to break through the male mindset in election committees you know south africa has reached 49% in the parliament through the list system because the anc gave 50% seats in their list of candidates to women sabar said we should have the list system in india by which you know you can give women um, seats from each political party they will put up women in losing seats when they know they have to give seats if they are forced to election commission said have dual member constituencies can you imagine let there be two candidates for every constituency one woman one man so that the man can run the constituency and the woman will just have to fall in line make rotis for him ha ah, and i mean say yes to everything because he will dominate then the, there are other uh, you know the Uh, nominations and this and that saying presidents nominations give more to women you know various um, other suggestions have been made but basically it is a question of accepting the fact that women can fight and win elections yes money and muscle power today creates problems for women because there's so much money required and most women cannot afford so party funding and helping women becomes very important but in uh, what i'm saying is in spite of women presidents ajaylalita mayawati sonia gandhi mamta mamta has moved forward now and uh, jammu and kashmir you know we had women presidents chief ministers but nobody seemed to uh, break the stronghold of men in decision making and in the past structures that's been my experience <clears throat> long years in the party hierarchy ms karat anything to add to that well i think you've raised a very important question that is about party political structures and that is a very critical issue since we do live in a party based democracy or party based parliamentary democracy i won't say democracy it's a much wider concept but yes within parties i think it is very very important to have similar movements within parties to fight patriarchal notions and practices and i know from my own experience in my own party the cpim we have had a big battle on this and we found in this fight our strongest allies were many enlightened men in our party and together what margaret has described you know at different levels of committees the kind of 
prejudices, the kind of superhuman abilities and capacities that a woman has to demonstrate to get into a committee post, all that is very much a reflection of patriarchal practices and notions. And therefore, within parties, it is essential for women and along with women, for men who are enlightened by, I mean, I believe there are enlightened men because I don't say in India, everybody is a, a, a patriarch, although you know, one of my greatest leaders, Lenin said, scratch a man and you'll find a chauvinist, a male chauvinist underneath. So that may be true to a great extent, but I do believe that within parties, the fight is extremely, extremely important. And I think in most parties, because of the pressure of women's movements also, there has been some improvement. So I'm not that despairing because I feel at least that there has definitely been some improvement. Secondly, as far as electoral politics are concerned, it is impossible to even consider that you can change the present pattern without a legal mandate to do so. It is not going to happen. There are so many issues we have discussed the list system, we said, if you have proportional representation at present, our electoral system is first past the post system. If you have proportional representation in your electoral system, as many countries do, including in many constituencies of South Africa. So if you have a proportional representation system where the percentage of votes a party gets is then linked to a list system. So if you get 10% votes, these are the three you will come and you will have to have of the three, one who is a woman. If you have proportional representation analyst system, we have no objection, but this government has never accepted the, 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 the system has never accepted proportional representation. Because if you have proportional representation, how are you going to rig the elections? So that's out of the thing. So without that, after 25 years of discussion, we have all come to the conclusion, so many committees, commissions, that this is the only way we can do it, a quota. And that is we start with 33%. And just like in panchayats, you move from 33% to a 50% mandatory reservation. I'm sure women will move on, but we need that 33%. We need that to begin okay. with, and that can only be done through a law. Fair enough. Uh, sorry, there's another very good point that Ms. Alva raised, which in fact I was hoping to bring up later, which is that alongside this bill... I just want uh, to mention, you said Dima will bear me out. Those of us who are vocal and fight and talk are the first to be eased out of committee <laughs> and out of these decision-making places, saying, ayo, ye to problem hai inko toda sa bahar so those who are very vocal and assertive don't last very long that's true of women everywhere miss alva nobody likes us talking nobody ever uh, <laughs> but i just you raised another very very important point miss alva that which i was hoping to bring up later that alongside this bill perhaps we should also talk a little bit about positive reforms that will impact the financing of elections as well as criminality in politics that might go a very, very long way in, in composition with this bill to make sure that women 
um, can get themselves elected and become policy yes. makers and governors. So, uh, <coughs> Audrey, uh, I'll start with you, but I, I, I would also like your comments on uh, uh, on that thought. Me? Um, I was starting with Ms. Chaudhary, but I don't know if she can hear me. Uh, yeah, she I, can. I, <laughs> would you like to? I was considering, I just fought the last Lok Sabha election where I was told uh, three days before the last day of nomination that I'm going to contest. Until then, I wasn't aware that I was going to contest. And then I had out of the seven assembly segments, six MLAs who had defected, who, by the way, I had protested that they shouldn't be given the tickets because they were an unreliable lot. But nevertheless, they were given the tickets, assembly tickets. And then they, they uh, went and left the party and went off to the ruling party. And then, uh, so you don't have any structural support on the ground level and you're contesting an election. And violence in election is in many hundred ways that violence against women in politics happens. And I was, my Ranga Pravesam into politics was with violence, where I had the gabbar singh of uh, Andhra politics attacking our convoys with vehicles and slamming into our vehicles. Police who I would complain to would go and complain to him in my presence and say that she's such a nuisance. She brings the rule book around and she's creating hell for us. So uh, Anna, which means elder brother, save us from me while I was quoting the rules. So there, you have to, if you want to talk about electoral reforms, I'm always amazed that the election commission spends tons of money to cover up Mayawati statues and elephant statues and uh, Rajiv Gandhi statues uh, during election time to tell a villager that he should not be influenced by the statue when he's casting his vote. It is absurd because that statue has been lying there for the past 20 years and Ambedkarji's statues which have been lying there for uh, from the year dot and people don't don't even subconsciously register it till you make a scene and you cover it. And then you draw the whole village's attention that these statues are being covered for the electoral process. But they don't address how money is brought in. I have seized a car myself in the last election where the man brought in the Hindi movie style gunny bags of cash and he was distributed. We arrested the car, the driver and his assistant ran away from the vehicle. We have yet to see the light of the day regarding the case. And people are on video evidence of the poly ruling political party in Telangana wearing their colors around their neck, distributing notes. I can show it to you on this if you want. Distributing the notes along with the electoral slip which they're doing. We've brought the attention. The whole village knows that the money is being distributed tonight. But the election commission becomes deaf mute. They don't hear this. They don't see this. They don't correct this. Their vouchers given to the local chicken shop as which the voter can go and exchange for chicken and the liquor. And I complained to the observer and he said, well, am I supposed to go and arrest the chicken? So I said, you're supposed to stop People exchanging vouchers for half a bottle of liquor and chicken. How can you allow this? But this happens. So it is a very complex uh, situation. And you also have rules um, which are ironclad and a police force that listens to you because they listen unnecessarily to the ruling government. And the, the porosity in the laws that they bring about, um, how do you tighten those? How do you make them watertight to prevent this kind of violence? 
and the money that you need for uh, elections. How do you bring money? We had our own police cars transporting money of the ruling government into the villages. And it's an open secret who has kept what. And we had the ruling MLA there who actually went to the village, stepped on a sarpanch woman, dropped her and stepped on her throat where the vocal cords, her larynx got affected. And he threatened to pour petrol over the entire village and set it on fire if he didn't get the numbers and if I got more. Polling agents who are pulled out of our booths physically and beaten up. MLAs whose sons sit as polling agents in medical <coughs> colleges, their own medical colleges. So the polling booths are held in the medical colleges. And then these, uh, the son is sitting there to watch because the students have been told that if we don't get this many votes, you'll be failed in your medical exam. So it's ingenious how they cook up situations. Um, how do you control all of this for women to win elections? Uh, Kirin Shah Mazumdar had said that, yes, we, we should have gender uh, funding for women who come into politics. But uh, how many men will see that space and a man who will spend 100 crores, that is a ballpark figure, 100 crores, which my opponent had to spend to win his election. The formula is straight. You pay 10 lakh people 1,000 rupees the night before the election. And he's distributing. The whole city, the whole village knows, the town knows, the headquarters knows, the sarpanch knows. Money is being distributed. And 100 crores and 33 crores were flown in on the aircraft. And the chief minister of Telangana was in a fine state of panic because the Satta Bazaar was backing me. And he appointed himself in charge of my district, my, uh, my seat. Okay. So I'm rather flattered. It cost them 100 crores. At least public got the money. My God, what stories. I mean, it... it constantly baffles me despite my time in this world as a woman as to what a hash men have made of everything in this world having dominated and having had their say for millions of years and yet their sense of feeling threatened and feeling like victims themselves never abates of course this is a generalization but it, it still doesn't fail to baffle me on what we were talking about with uh, Ms. Chaudhary, uh, Ms. Alba, Ms. Karat, your views on that, and then I will... Well, um, yes, if I, may, if I may come in here. Please. You see, really what is happening is a takeover, and I think it's what Renuka has described. I mean, if you look at it in a broader political perspective, her own individual experience, what we are really seeing is a takeover of our parliamentary democracy and parliamentary democratic processes by big money. And we are also seeing the present government pushing this opacity as far as the opaqueness of the whole electoral funding system. Now, this whole system of electoral bonds, what is the system of electoral bonds? This means that anybody can donate any amount of money to any political party of their choice. And the voters of this country and people of this country will not know who is donating, how much money to which political party and what is the quid pro quo of this electoral generosity to any political party. And if you look at the figures which are coming out of thousands of crore rupees, of which 85 to 90% of the money 
is all given to the ruling Bharatiya Janta Party. Now the question is, if you are fighting elections on the basis of huge funding that you have, what is this PM care fund? Who is the PM caring for? I have to raise this issue. I mean, no, at this point of the COVID pandemic, you have a political party spending 150 crore rupees putting up LED screens, putting up giving smartphones to their karyakartas in Bihar three months before the elections. They have got an amount of 150 crore rupees for one virtual rally. And the election commission, who has taken no position as far as all this funding is concerned, goes further and suggests in Bihar that you have a virtual electoral campaign for the Bihar elections. So what we are seeing is not only the takeover of big money of our parliamentary democratic system, which I think affects all parties, particularly a party like mine. I mean, our candidates are whom? They're whole timers of the party. They're middle-class professionals. And you can imagine how absolutely impossible it is. Forget women. Nobody can fight an honest election today. So the first point is electoral reform. And we believe that state funding is absolutely essential. You have to put an end to corporate funding. You have to put an end to big business funding. You have to put an end to avenues of black money to political parties, which is what this electoral bond system is. It's an easy avenue for money laundering. You have to put an end to that. And the only ways to have state funding, many countries have it, and they have restricted, they, we're not saying restrict de democracy or democratic campaigning, but you cannot have campaigning on the basis of this. And another point which affects it is the conflict of interest. How many times have we raised it? In fact, it was when I was in the Rajya Sabha and some representatives of big business who themselves were representatives of that particular business. When the discussion or question hour was on, they would get up and speak from the point of view of their business. So I raised the question at that time that this is a clear conflict of interest. Unless you know who this gentleman is and which interest he's representing, as a member of parliament, are you allowed to so nakedly represent a corporate body? And after that, some rules were framed that if somebody gets up, they have to say, I represent and I belong to such and such business house. And then I'm going to speak on this industry or that industry. But that really doesn't solve the problem. So I think our system is in grave danger of being overtaken and taken over by big money. And I think that's destructive of India's democracy and insult to the people of India. Yeah, and it will definitely get in the way of all of all of us who've been uh, pushing for broadening the and expanding the democratic framework of this country. Any last thoughts on this, Ms. Alba, before I take a couple of audience no, questions? Is it almost I, I won't repeat the violence and the money power and so on. Another dangerous trend which is taking shape is religion in elections. The whole issue, this is supposed to be 
uh, against the electoral law. But religion in the worst and most open form is being used to influence voting. And I have seen this happen in my own case, of course, that time it was not so bad, but thousands of postcards went round. A vote for Alva is a vote for Rome because I happen to be a Roman Catholic. And a vote for Hegde, that's for the BJP, is a vote for Ram. And unsigned, you know, nothing but hundreds of thousands of these postcards to the voters. Then came the issue of getting women to temples, doing pujas, giving them, uh, you know, the kumkum and uh, thing, and uh, making them promise that they will vote for the Kamal and give them a muguti or something inside temples. Now, these are things which the election commission has to look at, but they don't. They say it's a simple puja. How can we interfere? And the women told me, madam, they take us there and then they make us promise. And then how can we break the vow? So, you know, there are various ways in which religion is coming to play a very important role in elections and in I would say the misuse of religion, yeah. the blatant misuse and subversion of the constitution using religion, which is mainly being done by the Bharatiya Janata Party. Unfortunately, yes. They have reduced Ram into the ballot box yes. and put him there and they're supposed to be... And Sita, of course, is nowhere in the picture. Why would she be? They would prefer to see Neither in parliament, nor in the women's bill. And no in any campaign. But what is happening here, as we sign off, is that in the last election, we had 8,149 candidates, out of which 724 were women. But what is even better, 222 women had the audacity to come forward and file as independents. It doesn't matter what the result was, but that they believed that they can come and make a day have a take at the system i love that i love that that's a good there that's true yeah so you know 222 women actually managed to get people to sign their um uh, their nomination form and they actually went and filed a nomination i think that's fantastic it's happening that women actually do and that's what scares the men which is precisely after the panchayat success where yes. from 33 percent we went up to 50 percent and we're doing a jolly good job about it. That is what scared the men. They've said, oh my God, if these women come in, uh, when the reservation is for 33, they will go up to 50. Maybe there will be a time when the men will need a reservation policy in parliament. Uh, well, that's true. But I would just like to add very quickly a point, which is what we are learning uh, in the political scenario today, that it's not just biology, it's also ideology. Because if you have a large number of women, the largest number of women that we've ever had in parliament, 14% today, but if they adhere to an ideology which divides people, which divides women, which targets women on the basis of their community and their religion, then I think you are doing a disservice to women in general. So I won't say, I, I have a slight difference of opinion as far as 
this biological essentialist theories go. Because I strongly believe that yes, you're a woman, but unless you have an ideology, unless you believe in a politics which reflects the Dr. Ambedkar's constitutional values, I don't think you're going to be of any service to the women's movement or to women's rights. I fight for them because I believe any type of discrimination because anybody is a woman, and therefore that's why I fight, not because I necessarily feel that they would be any better than, say, a very progressive man in parliament. But I do believe, why the discrimination? Why should women not be given a chance? Why should women always be kept away from decision-making bodies? So that is why it's our fight against discrimination which drives me to believe that to expand democracy, one of the levers of expansion of democracy is to ensure that the Women's Reservation Bill is brought to Parliament and passed in Parliament when this government, in its election manifesto, Ms. Karan, says they're going to pass. Sorry, may I interrupt you for a Why second? Why aren't they doing it? Uh, yeah, sure. uh, sorry, uh, the thing is, we there, we have a couple of questions from the audience. We're almost out of time, and I'd like to take some of them. And one of them actually is a question that somewhat relates to what you organically brought up. So I thought maybe I'll just introduce the question uh, to sure. you. Uh, there's somebody who's an, an anonymous attendee, doesn't not willing to be identified, who asks, what about women who undermine interests of other women in the political space? Examples, Priti Rani. Now, without singling any one yeah. person out is you did bring that up in, in your sort of very well articulated biology and ideology, um, you know, uh, framework. I just wanted to get your sense that is that you all have also spoken about the bipartisan bonhomi behind this bill. So is this something that we're seeing more of in the political arena right now? Or do you think it always existed? Well, if you ask my opinion, I see very, very little of it. I see none of it. I remember at my time when I was in parliament at that time, when a most sexist comment was made against a woman member, and we all stood up and protested, women across the house protested. When Renuka was insulted, and I'm really, I'm happy that she's brought up that point today. When she was insulted by the prime minister of India, who's trying to demean her in trying to do that, he demeaned himself and showed what he was worth. But there was not a single woman member. I mean, I did see Uma Bharti hide her face in her hands. I don't know what that, whether she was laughing or whether what, what that signified, I don't know. But I looked very closely at that time. The women members there, not a single one of them. In fact, they applauded the prime minister. I think that does not speak well for what uh, we expect women to do. I'm very sorry to say, right now, I don't see any solidarity whatsoever. Otherwise, why are the women silent on the Women's Reservation Bill, Pragya? I have why? To, I have to tell you what happened after that incident and how the journal and all that chaos. Uh, women did come across some of the, not the BJP, but the rest That's of what the I'm saying. parties came across to the uh, uh, vice president's chamber and mm. they took him on and I had Jaya Bachchan and Shelja Kumari and yeah, uh, sure. all of them came there and they, they yeah but not the BJP so the vice president himself was 
belittling me about my weight. He was actually talking about my physicking. And 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 if that can happen to someone like me, you can imagine how intimidated the other. No, Renuka, what I'm saying is about Pragya's raising bipartisanship. Bipartisan, we meet the ruling party and the opposition. So there, the ruling party women behaved in the most atrocious way. They were I'm sorry to say. Yeah, exactly. And the home minister, the then MOS home minister, who actually put up negative posts on online, and then when he realized the backlash and so many people attacked him. And I was thrilled that I got support across society where people posted pictures saying, yes, we are Surpanakas. We don't want to be uh, uh, Sitas. And they all, it became a hashtag where everyone said, laugh like Renuka Chaudhary. And it, when that onslaught came, he quickly deleted everything from his uh, site and sat quiet. And he's the home minister, the upkeeper of law and order, and who's supposed to look after the laws that anyway what the point you're making pragya about on certain issues can and should women mps get together mm -hmm. i think it is a very important part of our political process to do that i remember in the rajya sabha across parties we had got signatures from women to say in the business agenda and in the running of the house why are women's issues not included. Why is it? And we signed a memorandum and gave it to the chairman. And because of that, so many important issues, which had rarely been discussed in parliament, uh, came on the agenda. I believe it is possible. I think it should be done. And I think um, mm. women members in parliament really have to ensure and they, and the ruling party women members have the greater responsibility. And unfortunately, they are completely absent in this, which is why we are having such a problem with the Women's Reservation Bill. During the UAPA time, I know because I was fighting for it, so many Congress women MPs at that time, they fought for it within their own party. But we don't see that in the BJP today, not at all. They are silent and they not only are silent, they sometimes acquiesce and connive and become the spokespersons for the worst kind of patriarchal politics. And I think that is a tragedy uh, for Indian politics today. Yeah, it's also symptomatic of the democratic space shrinking. But we have That's a question true. from Shreya Sharma who says, sorry, uh, who says, did women politicians, did uh, within the parties, have they ever uh, tried to form a union to bargain for seats within uh, in the election? Yes, yes, we have to, as Margaret said, they fight so hard. No, what she's asking is, have they tried to form unions within the, so just all the women within the Congress or within, you know, any party, have they tried to form unions every, within Every party? party has its women's women's organizations, yeah. where we prepare lists, we submit them, we get together, you know, all over the country and try to push them up. But even across party, when I was parliamentary affairs minister, Renuka, you will remember, I used to try to get women from all the political parties. I said, let's fight outside in parliament. Let us stand up for issues which affect women and not have divisions among us. 
And most of us used to try to get together on basic issues affecting women, whether it was rape or whether it was violence against women in some state or some other very indecent behavior. We all stood together and raised it in the house, though we were in different political parties. I think that is very, very important, as Brinda says, on many issues today where, which affect women. Women are afraid to speak because of their party bosses and they don't want to take a stand in the house because one of them told me, you know, that kind of uh, fear among women to speak up on issues which concern them. I, I, I think that's, you know, that's not justifiable at all. It's not, it's not at all justified. It's absolute. And quite frankly, this is, I, I mean, I'm sorry, this is just a reflection of, you know, a really, what should I say, a deterioration um, in commitment to women's issues and the fight for equality and for emancipation. It's very, very unfortunate. And that is what is dominant because of the ruling party and their culture. That's it. I mean, we all have differences. Everybody has political differences. But you can't behave in this way in which you don't have a single solidarity action. You don't say a word no because of this communal and toxic agenda which is going on. I'm sorry. This is, un uh, this is uh, something which has to be strongly opposed. Men or women, look, I'm totally against that kind of politics. I don't care if it's a man saying it or a woman saying it. It's the politics I'm opposed to, and I will always oppose it. Okay, I, I'll take one final question from the audience, which is also from an anonymous attendee. Uh, in such a grim scenario, what do you think is the future of this bill? And when is it, what is it really going to take to bring the ruling party to attend to the agenda of women's emancipation, particularly this bill? I'll start with you, Ms. Chaudhary, and I'll take all three of your comments. Well, there's no single black and white answer to this, Pragya, because uh, it is a process of evolution that's going to come around. Um, this ruling party, uh, the methods they're using to win their elections are not democratic at all. So unless we primarily restore the balance, the democratic uh, balance that is required, and you have uh, election commission that learns to stand up straight and and implement the law and you have state governments which are committed to electoral reforms also and the parliament a house that will collectively work towards the betterment of, of the nation because it is about the country ultimately uh, it is going to be a slow process to some extent but a growing awareness webinars like this which will give uh, remind people that a lot of us have forgotten what uh, democratic practices are because we are so mired in the mathematics of politics and the math is always dictating the victory and the loss of elections and hence. So you have in this parliament the first time the highest percentage of newcomers, highest percentage of first timers who have come into parliament and we've always had a balance where we had the old timers also who guided us, who told us where you get off, where the black and white rules end and, and a, a, a space comes where you use your discretion and you bring about a conversation like this where we say let's all unite and fight. It's not just about being obediently yours in parliament. 
and we did start that process but it's gone now it's gone so for a bit we are back to the drawing board we are there and we have to take this process forward and we have to use every instrument and implement that we have to restore this again and to start. i think if this bill has to go through all the opposition parties commitments have been made in our manifestos commitments have been made at all levels in every state except for the rjd and uh, and um, samajwadi samajwadi all the others are committed why don't the leaders of these political parties go to the chairman or whatever in the business advisory committee and insist that this bill has to be tabled in the session we want it discussed let it be thrown out if you don't want to vote but the majority of those parties and the ruling party have the numbers to just finish that bill in 2 hours without even discussion if you want but the numbers are all there to get two third majority but you don't want to introduce it in the house and debate that is the point so it is not just the ruling party i am asking why the opposition leaders in the house do not get together and make this demand united not the women but the political leaders who head political parties who have made these commitments already they should be held responsible for not pushing the government to complete the task magret they made a commitment to the concert, uh, to their uh, manifestos only because you had women's groups women like all of us sitting there hammering at them have hammer, and then we they, they were coerced into bringing this about you think they voluntarily any one of them will do it do you think anyone really wants it that's the question sir your thoughts on that thank you so i believe that in all these years the one sustained struggle has been the struggle of women's organizations linked with women at the panchayat level i think that is the lever and i think women's organizations are reorganizing on this issue the pandemic because there was going to be a very big mobilization on march the 8th on this very issue but because of the pandemic and all what's happened during lockdown obviously that has gone into the background now we'll have to see when parliament starts again but i believe it is the forces outside parliament who are going to drive because let's face it we can't do anything and there says pressure on this government to act margaret has very correctly said what is the opposition doing let me just remind um ourselves one the tmc which is the largest number of women in parliament after the bjp in the congress they are, have not they abstained from the bill in 2010 they did not vote for the bill and i don't know whether they've changed their stand they are not supporting the bill the rjd is not supporting the bill the samajwadi party is not supporting the bill the bsp walked out at the time of the bill not that they have very large numbers in the house right now but still if we just depend only on the opposition strategy of because there are very few there's only the left and the congress and the dmk who are actually and to some extent the ai dmk because they cannot totally give up jayalalita ji's commitment to the bill so even though they're silent on it i don't think they can walk back away 
So we have this group in parliament who would support the bill, but that's not much in terms of numbers. So the alliance really has to be with women's organization movements and at the panchayat level. It is that movement and that pressure on BJP women MPs and on the BJP itself. In every constituency, women have to ask the question, what about the bill? It's that kind of public pressure which is going to drive the struggle for the bill. And really, I'm confident that if we can do that, and I think we can, we have in the past, it's very much on the current agenda. We have to push it. How can the government bring all kinds of things into parliament without this very important promise they made to women? So we have to work on that. And we all have to work hard wherever we are, wherever we are, whenever we got the opportunity, speak to the government on this issue and make them remember it. Make it a nightmare in their heads that if we don't get this bill through, we're going to face hell from the women. I think that's what's going to drive it. Absolutely. That's the perfect note to end this conversation on. It falls upon civil society, on each one of us, to those of you who are listening, who've been tuned, who've been tuned into this conversation to use all possible democratic and legal tools to mobilize a campaign, a nationwide campaign, include, inclusive of all kinds of men and women from all strata, all class, all uh, castes, and to build that pressure so that it cannot be ignored anymore, no matter who is in power, whether it's this party or the opposition or who be it. And that's really the big hope that we can leave with today. Thank you all very much for listening. And if you enjoyed this, then please support and join the Quince membership program uh, by going on the website and clicking on support Quint. And do remember that there are two more conversations on this subject by this wonderful foundation today at 9 p.m. and tomorrow at 5 p.m. Thank you all very much for talking with me. And thank you all for listening. Thank, thank you. you so much.